The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is What's News from The Wall Street Journal. Hello and welcome to Money Beat Week. This is Steve Grosser with Michael Casey, John Carney, and Eric Holm. This week we'll talk about the markets, um, city groups, a restatement of earnings, and how Eric Holm is like an octopus. More after this. Cloud may be just another overused buzzword, but the cloud is an effective computing environment that can save your business time and money. Barracuda Networks is no stranger to the cloud. In fact, all of our security and storage solutions connect to the cloud for continuous updates and off-site redundancy. Barracuda's cloud also plays host to our email security, web security, file sharing, and e-signing services. We even offer solutions on Amazon's AWS and Microsoft's Azure public cloud platforms. To try any of our cloud-connected solutions free, visit barracuda.com slash cloud. Let's, let, let's go back a little bit in time, just this month. October is an interesting month. Two weeks ago, we were really th- seriously thinking that a correction was on its way, that, you know, volatility was completely back. And since then, in 10 sessions, I think, you know, the market has made up all the lost ground. And today, we crossed into, on an intraday level, into both S&P and Dow crossed into record territory. What what has changed? I mean, Europe nothing's is still, changed. Nothing, yeah, Europe's nothing's still changed. Bad. Asia, you know, China's still slowing. Tapering's over. Right. Well, uh, here's what I think changed. Right, the, the Fed finally announces that's it. Right, QE is coming to an end. Uh, sort of. I mean, they they still buy lots of securities. They're just not increasing the portfolio anymore. And yet the world didn't end. You know, everybody's spent the last year in terror. What happens? I mean, the last three years, really. What happens when the Fed, you know, finally stops QE? We were afraid of the taper. That didn't crash the markets. We were afraid of, we were afraid of the end of the expansion. That didn't crash the markets. So I think it's kind of like, hey, look, we survived. Well, we had earnings, right? Now, I mean, I don't know. that they, they, they were supposedly in various quarters better than expected. But I think, you know, we certainly had some, some misses as well. I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't have ever characterized this as a, as a blowout earnings quarter. Nonetheless, it, it certainly seems to have been something that gave people to hang their hats on and get back into it. I mean, the thing that struck me about the time we were going for that decline, there was this, there was this phrase uh, uh, that the market was priced for, 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 for peck. Priced for perfection. I just found myself a good tongue twister. And at that moment, when we got just little bits of less than expected uh, positive news, everybody was like, "That's it. We, we nothing can sustain these levels. I'm going for the door." Um, what I don't know how he came out of that was something of slightly better than expected numbers out of China. Slightly better than expected. There has been signs that Spain is stabilizing and that Germany is maybe not falling into a hole. And so you had the kind of reverse effect of that, which was to say, wow, it's not actually going through a, a calamitous spiral into nowhere. Uh, and on that basis, I'm going to buy. But we're now back to what we were saying was priced for perfection. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a really kind of safe place to be because imperfection is, is quite you know, likely to show its ugly face at some point. The other thing, too, and this is something that our former colleague Steve Russo and I used to talk about quite a bit, was this – is the reality, too, is we've, we, like what was happening in sort of the beginning of October has sort of played out many, many times 
over the last you know uh, year or in a bit, which is you know you buy the dips, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's like and it, they always sort of come right in the walk up to earnings season, the, you know, and you'll you see the markets pull back, and then earnings season starts, you see that people start climbing back into the market, and and you, and you also see, I mean, the, in the areas that are hardest hit are the ones that were the riskiest, the highest yielding uh, sort of investments, the. The momentum stocks, the Teslas, the biotech, the Russell 2000. I mean, if you look at the Russell 2000, it's a it's a roller coaster ride, um, you know, in the last uh, you know month and a half. Um, I mean, is is that really just this sort of trend playing out? Is you know, ahead of earnings season, people just sort of dumping their risky and then piling back in, buying yeah, all but, the dips. But real world factors are going to have to play in. I mean, there, and there have been some sort of fairly big, profound changes in in the you know global economic equation. The most important of which I think is the dollar. The dollar has rallied for months now, um, and that does throw things out. Now we have Japan uh, coming out with another expansion in its monetary uh, its QE program, which is going to has already weakened the yen and will continue to weaken the yen further. Other countries are going to follow suit. The idea of the dollar's upward trajectory is going to continue. That changes the, the dynamics considerably for, for multinationals. I don't know how these things don't factor in at some point into you know, whatever calculus people are making on that cycle that you were referring to. And what about oil? in this uh, sort of cuz oil actually hasn't rebounded at all and today was below the you know the 80 dollars threshold for quite a bit yeah. um you know psychologically important 80 dollar threshold and you know um you that can, is sort uh, of yeah, I can't s- figure out. People seem to disagree on that whether cheap oil is good or bad for for uh, stocks uh, and for the economy. I have the answer. It's good. okay, Carney. Go ahead. Uh, the answer is that cheap oil is very, very good for the economy. Um, you have to look at what's happened because what it essentially is is a license to increase spending on things other than fuel. No. So. We, if you look at what happened to consumer spending uh, in August and September, it didn't grow by very much. But when you have oil prices falling, that means you can spend on tons of other stuff. So, in fact, consumer spending X oil is growing, and that's good for stocks. It's good for every company that doesn't process, make oil. I wouldn't want to be in the fracking business. I wouldn't want to be in the refining business as these prices are falling and falling. But I'd want to be in every other business because this is savings for everybody else and money we could spend without either getting a raise at work or tapping into our savings. And nobody wants to tap into their savings. Savings rate is staying where it is. Nobody's getting raises. So oil is where the hole in the economy is coming from. Yeah, and a lot of people have been talking about like going into the holiday season. This will be you know, a, a nice boon for... Right, even know. if people aren't really thinking consciously, they know, they can look at their bank accounts and say... Look, it cost, you know, at the end of the month, you have a little bit more money than you used to because getting to work costs you a lot less. Yeah. I know. I mean, it, it's amazing. I mean, you really do. I mean, uh, we're all in New York, so we don't necessarily feel it quite as much. But in, when you're filling up your car and it costs $60, if, you, you know, if that drops down you know, $10, $20 every time you fill it up, that's, mm. that's actually not an insignificant savings. No. I mean, I think the way to think about oil is that it's, it's – it's, 
two things. It's that one is it's a signal of of the state of global demand, right? So so the the, the negative side of it is that well, this is ref, a reflection. It's not necessarily it, how what its impact is is a different factor. But there is a reflection of weak global demand that is is, is playing out in in those falling oil prices. But the thing is, but well, it's, it's a question of supply bucks, and well, demand. Supply well, so supply, there, there is weak demand. Factor. No, there is there is definitely. But I mean, the, but that supply has always been there. I mean, well, it, it was always well, no, factored. The shale, the, the, the rising the shale, the shale has. Say, always. I mean, the, sh- the rising shale, they, 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 of course, opened, the U.S. started allowing exports and that increased the supply as a result. But that was priced in to some extent, or at least should have been. The bigger factor, I think, has been, you know, the, 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 the signals of, of, of weak demand. That said, uh, it's still at 80 bucks. So it's not like, you know, it's, it's a signal of some sort of calamity. It's, it's, just, it's just slightly less, which to John's point means that there's money in people's pockets here in the U.S. and anywhere else for that matter that's an oil importer. But there is there are risks uh, that that can feed out through different sort of mechanisms, and and and, and there are countries and 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 there are companies and others who have exposure to this sector, very very big exposures. Uh, I mean, on a country level, you've got Russia, of course, confronting what may well be a crisis at some point, given what's happened to the ruble and everything else. You've got other countries that are in the oil exporting game, Venezuela and others. That uh, that at some point, you know, you could you could imagine if this cycle of falling oil prices reached a point. You'd have fairly big losses uh, for, for hedge funds or others and creditors and others exposed to these places, and some sort of crisis could emerge out of that. So it, to me, it's a balancing game. I mean, right now, I think we're probably in a sweet spot. But if, if you were to see oil fall even further and, and the fracking guys started to sort of, you know, see losses as a result of that, you might actually start to see negative feedback. Oh, yeah, no, que- no question. There's a lot of the global economy, but also of the U.S. economy and the U.S. financial system that is very geared around energy production. And if that drops off too far, particularly if it drops off for the re- – if the prices drop for the reason you were just talking about, which is – Global demand starts to shrink, and not shrink for a good reason. Global demand can shrink for a lot of good reasons. You can get a super fuel-efficient car. You can you know, start to depend on less pollutant uh, energy. But if it's starting to shrink because generally global, the global economy is slowing, so then you have two effects, right? You have a lot of losses from people who have invested money in the energy production atmosphere and and entire countries that are heavily geared towards that and all of the global slowdown in demand that can be uh that can end up being bad for uh the global economy but as you're saying you know at 80 bucks um and particularly u.s focused it's it's good for our economy I mean, things like iPhones will sell more at Christmas right. because people have more money to buy them when they right. get around to that. I think of oil as a tax, basically, yep. and, and, it's, and it's a tax cut, effectively. So, I mean, in that sense, it, it, it is at this stage, I think, probably unambiguously positive, certainly for the U.S. Now, the other big story that we sort of hit on, uh, you know, that broke last night was Citigroup deciding to, you know, set aside another $600 million for legal settlements and uh, lowering their, you know, their earnings ahead of the, the, the release of the 10Q. Um, what it, and, and they weren't the only bank sort of, you know, sort of setting aside. Uh, sure, but they rate. weren't. But this is the second time this year. That Citigroup has had to go back and say, you know those earnings we told yeah, you about? No. Don't, you know, th- we got to change the numbers around. 
It's very disconcerting. Um, you you want to know when a company comes out and gives you the numbers that those are going to stick. Um, you don't want every other quarter or so to find out, mm, you know what, what you thought we earned, what we thought we earned, what we told you we thought we earned. It didn't really happen. You know, that said, uh, Citigroup has had slight, a lot less than some of the other big banks in terms of how much they've had to set aside. So they may be playing catch up at this point. They have more exposure than some of the others to things like the foreign exchange yeah. investigation. This is going considered, on. you know, based on our reporting, um, you know, to be related probably to that. Right. Um, we, you know, people believe it's related. It appears to be, we, we're not sure they haven't exactly come out and told us. People think there may be, this might be an indication that a big settlement is coming very, very soon. Um, because if it was weeks or months away, you probably wouldn't restate last quarter's earnings. Yeah. So it must be that it's sort of on the desk of the executives at Citigroup now. But um, you know, we don't know. It could they've had this. They had that problem in Mexico. It could be related to other problems they have, and that's one of the. You never want that as a company for people to for to take a six hundred million dollar charge and for people to be unsure which, which of your which problems. Screw up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's 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 bad news. So wait, why would you do that though? If you're the CEO, why would you? What do they have to restate last earning last quarter's earnings? Why couldn't they just tack it on next quarter? And because restating earnings is right. a bad thing, no matter what you're doing. And people expected these costs eventually. Right. So well, why so did they restate? That's there, what I'm still lost on. There's a there's an accounting rule called subsequent event accounting um, that was changed a little bit recently. But what it means is that you, if something happens between the time you initially report your quarterly numbers. And the time you do your ten, your quarterly, your ten Q, um, and it's related to the things that you were disclosing, things that already were pre-existing. So, for instance, Legal investigations, yeah. you know, foreign exchange investigations, anything you were you thought was going on then, but a subsequent event has told you no, it's going to cost more, or no, it's different than you thought it was, or you've actually reached the settlement now, and so. Uh, and, you know, you have to have a – it takes – it's not just like, oh, we think it might be different. It's usually a pretty big degree of certainty, such as like the settlement has been reached or is, or is you know, pretty much agreed to. Um, then you're required to update your numbers um, and tell people a subsequent event has occurred. If you look through the thing, you'll find that very word in their uh, 10Q subsequent event, $600 million. Um, you know, it – in the past, this stuff didn't happen as much, be, probably because we didn't make CFOs sign and certify everything. But now, you know, if you're the CFO and you 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 get you're, on one part of your desk, you have a settlement agreement that's a lot more expensive than you thought it would be, and you're then trying to sign off on the 10Q, you probably tell your guys, we have a problem here. Uh, I'm not signing this until we update the 10Q. So you go ahead, you, you know, you update the 10Q. It makes you look bad, but it it's not, you know, when I first heard that they had to, you know, restate earnings, usually that means like you had a deep accounting problem, something really bad. Yeah, which this, has also happened. Right. <laughs> yeah, this <laughs> has happened. Um, but this wasn't that. This was that your estimate your estimate of your legal expenses has increased. That's a, or that's what you know. At least what we believe it is. What City is saying it is. Um, 
And that's a lot, that, that's a nicer of a problem. A subsequent event is better than a, uh, we're bad at math. Right. <laughs> Especially if you're a bank, you don't want to right. be bad at math. <laughs> what well, struck, so, sorry. Oh, no, go on. I was going to say, what struck me as, as interesting as the kind of the, the follow-up story to this, though, was the prospect of a global settlement. You know, the, the idea that this isn't just city, it's a number of banks. And not only that, it's it's a, it's potentially a number of regulators across the Atlantic. I mean, this is this, this is fairly un, unprecedented, right? To do something of this scale that involves regulators across different countries. Well, I think particularly because it has to do with this foreign exchange. Right. If you're going to get a settlement, that's you know you, you sort of needed everybody to work together on this in a way that if you have a mortgage problem or a, it's you know domestic, right? right it's, it's usually domestic or it's or it has to do with like one country, you know, the the sort of you know problems with uh, trading with partners that you're not supposed to, you know. Mm. This was the sort of global, you know, fixing every currency you could get your hands on to fix, uh, allegedly. So, so the, the, I'd like to get back to sort of the idea of get back to the you know, sort of the idea of city. And it, it, how much do you think? I mean, it doesn't seem. It seems like investors had exactly the same reaction that you had. Um, you know, at first everyone was like, "The stock got hammered after hours; it was down." Um, but today it was up, you know, one percent. And they sort of once, you know, sort of they realized what this was about. They sort of were giving City a pass. But how how, how many times does City get a pass like this? And it's and to be fair, it's not the only bank. I mean, Bank of America also had um, sure. accounting issues with you know their dividend, you know, that Look. affected what they gave to the stress test. Um, you know, there's an argument to be made that Citi can get away with it more than some other banks be, uh, because they're sort of priced for weakness. You know, we were talking about priced for perfection earlier. Citi is priced for not failure, but just imperfection. Um, and so if you were, uh, you know, a bank that had a much more sterling reputation when it came to your accounting, um, uh, uh, Wells Fargo is a, is a good example, and you had to restate something, that could be a bigger deal. Um, at Citigroup, you know, it's like, oh, we, you know, we have this problem in Mexico. Our own employees are stealing from from us. Uh, we've got this other thing where we're failing the stress test, and you know, the Fed is barking at us all the time. Oh, and you know, now we've, now our litigation costs us up. It's like you sort of build in an expectation that you you know, waiting for something bad to happen. I mean, that's terrible if you're a shareholder. You'd rather not have that expectation. You'd rather them get their act together. Uh, and and it's not a compliment to management in any way. But I, I think it actually, you know, oddly enough, allows them sort of room for error. Because, I mean, like, this was, I mean, the big reason. I mean, this isn't essentially the reason why, you know, Vikram was pushed out was, you know, he had – had you know the issues with uh, the Fed and not being able to raise the dividend of city and the communication issues and stuff like that, but those problems seem to have persisted now well into the new uh, regimes. Right. I mean, well, look, Citigroup is a very big global bank. You can't solve the problems of an institution like that by taking someone out. Yeah. You might. It might be a necessary step. It will never be a sufficient step. And so, you sh- you know you shouldn't expect it you know everything to be you know great just because you sent uh, Vikram Pandit packing. There will be uh, you know there, it takes a long time to turn a ship around. 
Um, right. And you just hope that you know the ship you're trying to turn around isn't the Titanic, and because that it's <laughs> going to be too late. Um, but you know, it does take. It's a. It's one of the biggest financial institutions the, in the, the world. The big is the operative word. I mean, this is. It's, it's no surprise. It's Citibank. It's Citigroup and it's Bank of America. The two banks that have just had this perennial problems since since the crisis. Uh, they bit off more than they could chew by, by becoming these big supermarkets of financial services. And as to your point, John, it, it's, it's just so hard to manage. Um, you know, I, I think you know, you, you're hearing regulators now becoming even more outspoken about how they really wish these guys were smaller. I mean, we've had William Dudley from the Fed virtually saying, you know, right, if you guys can't fix your culture, we're going to break you up. Now, I don't know how or what they, they would do, on what grounds they would do so. But but whether or not that threat is something that, that a regulator can follow up on, this the the very fact that there is now a kind of a consensus view that they are just too right. big is 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 very much widely understood now. I think well, I Washington talk- believes this is these are just too big, you know? I talked to some people at the with some background in the regulatory community and they and they told me that one of the reasons we've been getting that message from the Fed lately is that when the Fed says to these guys, look, you got to clean up your act. We, we don't think your capital planning process was adequate. We think you have all these other internal problems. Uh, get it straight. And then they don't get it straight and they're really annoyed. Wait, you know, we told you to fix this. And the bank's response has been, yeah, but we're really big and it's going to be really hard for us to do that. And the Fed's, you know, I mean, if you're a regulator, you're like, Okay. If you can't even write a report that sums up all the risks you right. face, then right. you might have a problem. Right. And, you know, and that, that's not that a good excuse. A <laughs> right. That's not a good excuse uh, for them to use. You know, yes, you're really big. So if, you, if you're saying that you can't straighten yourself out because you're so big, then you can't be that big. Right. That's, the, that's what that, they're saying. That seems pretty clear. And I, I just want to bring in, you know, for the World Cup, there's an octopus who did a very good job of predicting who is winning consistently. We have our own octopus in, in the studio with us today, Mr. Eric Holm, which was it two weeks ago, a week ago? It was last, uh, last, uh, last Friday when the World Series was tied one game apiece. I had a prediction. Uh, Madison Bumgarner is awesome. I got to go Giants in seven. Wow. Hello, hello. <laughs> now, I want to know how nervous were you on that uh, – on, on the – Almost inside the park, home run or error, <laughs> home run. I mean, were you? Uh... I, um, I I I put my head down, and I just didn't watch. So I was actually not that nervous. It was only later that I realized that they were, you know, that it was like a fifty-fifty chance on whether that that game was going to be tied up there at the very very last second. I still think they should have sent him. I do too. I was crazy. Play I mean, play Madison Bumgarner was unstoppable. You, there was only a, a, you know, say call it a 30 to 40% chance the guy was going to not make an out. You know? I mean, what, uh, what, are the, what were the odds going to be? Madison Bumgarner is awesome. I- yeah. Yeah, yeah. See? <laughs> so. I, I have to tell you, until I listened to you say that, I was playing my own version of uh, 
last man uh, where I was trying not to even find out who was going to be in this year's World Series. <laughs> um, and it was actually the podcast that ruined it because that I knew. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, oh, you know, financial, you know, this will be a safe place. And, you know, so then I found out. We and then, buried the yeah. buried it at the end of the podcast. Yeah. And sorry. You snuck sorry. it up on me. But at least you got worthwhile information from it. I did. It was very, yeah. it, you know, it was, it was, you were correct. So that was good. Yeah, should we fill our listeners in here? Mr. Steve Russolillo, longtime Money Beat uh, commenter or uh, blogger. blog author, uh, has, has left us this week. As of Wednesday, he had a great he, uh, post last, about last his final post was it was a, something quite quite epic. Yeah, yeah. He he had to issue a formal, a formal apology, apology to Mila Kunis. <laughs> so now the story is. So what's the story? Well, well, so so back in June of 2013, I think it was June or it was around there. She goes on CNBC and she is like, "Oh no, I'm getting into the stock market. I'm buying." Mila Kunis, not Steve Russolillo. Yes. <laughs> so Steve decides, okay, I you know this has got to be a sign of the top when CNBC starts having you know uh, Hollywood you know actresses on touting investing in the stock sure. market. It's like the shoe shine. Uh, uh, right back in the depression. So he writes a post explaining, you know, why you should not follow her advice. You should not get into the market. And it was everything he said was logical, made sense, except for one thing. And, and it really is. It's like don't fight the Fed. The <laughs> Fed was still buying, you know, stocks at or not stocks, buying uh, bonds at a rapid rate, pumping money into the economy, and the stock market went up twenty percent. You know, I think I'm going to just say, because I'm a believer that QE didn't actually do as much as people think to inflate the market. Maybe it's just don't fight Cunis. (laughs) <laughs> that could be the that new guy, I think that not, let's, let's follow we have her a, a new candidate for uh, can we call for, Mila Kunis instead yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the, but the point was that he issued a, an apology a joking apology uh, and well uh, it was a heartfelt apology I mean yeah, it, it was yeah. from the bottom of his actually, heart I, I, I actually like, have to say it was, it, it was a great post <laughs> not just saying he did one nice thing he was he did more than one great service he wrote probably I think it was you know in the three 3,500, 3,600 posts in his time uh, and, and, and drove about 17 million page views to um, the various WSJ blogs that he worked for. So he was a producer. I mean, you can, you know, he earned his keep very well. And he was great. I mean, he was really, I mean, I think, you know, I think Eric would agree with this and everyone here. Like, Steve was really like the engine of, of Money Beat. Um, and he also had a particularly astute eye for what would get traffic. I will remember you. <laughs> <laughs> and I will think at that point, we can, uh, we, can, we can end it there. You've been listening to What's News from the Wall Street Journal.